0: Beloved, let us turn in God's holy word this morning to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 8. 4 through 8 of Hebrews 6, it's found on page 1003 of your pew Bible. I've entitled the sermon, A Severe Warning, A Dire Warning. Yes, God uses warnings, He does. It's part of his arsenal. It's in his toolbox. It's how he preserves us and how he works perseverance in us through, through warnings. The elect of God hear the warnings and they take heed to those warnings. They tremble at the warnings. They can work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Well, last week we began looking at the, the preacher's third major exhortation that began for us in chapter 5, verse 12. We saw that the words were, were short that they were dense and they were intense, were they not? You see, the preacher is very concerned about the, the church's lack of diligence. He's concerned that they are immature. They don't understand the word of God. They they're living off the ABCs of the Christian life. They they need milk, not word, not the not the meat of the word. And he's very distressed. He he longs to teach them and to instruct them in the in the deeper things of God, particularly as it relates to Christ's priesthood in the Order of Melchizedek. But the church, rather than progressing, is regressing. They're going backwards. For every step, they're stepping forward, they're going back three steps. So the preacher longs for the congregation to grow up, to mature. 6, they might be able to distinguish good from evil. Today, beginning in chapter 6, verse 4, he goes on to warn them about the, the real danger, the real possibility of apostasy, that is, turning away, renouncing Christ, and walking away from the faith they once professed. He writes a little later in chapter 6, We desire each one of you to share and to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Andrew Murray captures the preacher's desire and the essence of his longing for these people with these words. The argument that the preacher makes here is one of unspeakable solemnity. In business, in academics, in war, it is often said there is no safety but to advance. To stand still is to go back. To cease to move forward is to lose ground. To to slacken the pace before the goal is reached is to lose the race. You see, the whole point of the passage is this admonition, this brief word of exhortation that Jesus is better Let us press on to maturity. Let us grow up and stop being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by all the trinkets that are in Vanity Fair in the world and also in the visible church, but hold fast to the Jesus that's been revealed to you through the apostles and through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well today, to set the context for this severe warning, let's step back and read chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 8. You want to have your Bibles open. The preacher, the writer says about this, about the high priestly ministry of Christ and the order of Melchizedek, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull, that is, lazy, sluggish. You become sluggish of hearing. For although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles, the foundational principles of the oracles or words of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled. In the word of righteousness, since he is a child or an infant. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have the power, their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. Or good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, that is the ABCs. And go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings or or baptisms, the laying on of hands, the the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. This we will do if God permits. For, or because, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, And have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then having fallen away to restore or renew them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it, that is the land, bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned." Thus far, the reading of God's holy and infallible word, may He give us ears to hear. Let us go before Him and pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the great physician, the one who gives us ears to hear, the one who makes our hearts willing and able to receive the word, the one who gives us faith, and the one who grants us the evangelical grace of repentance. To turn from sin to Christ, to embrace the light and to walk in the light. We would pray now, Lord, that you would bless the words of my mouth, that I would be clear, that your people would be challenged, people would be stirred, and as Bill has prayed so sensitively, that the bruised reed would be encouraged. And the proud would be awakened and brought low, that they might inherit the kingdom of God with a broken and contrite spirit, and that all of us would grow up and press on in maturity in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our King. We would pray and we would ask this in your name, or apart from your spirit, we can do nothing. Oh Jesus, come and bless your word, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Well, I don't need to tell you this, but the passage that I just read is probably in severest and, and strongest warning in all of the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. All 66 books, you'd be hard-pressed to find a, a more severe or dire warning It's one of the most sobering texts in all of the Bible. Many have read these verses with with fear and trembling. And I would say if if you hear me reading those verses and you fear and you tremble, that's a good thing. That means that God has not given up on you. The Spirit of God has not abandoned you. He hasn't left you to your own devices. But maybe this morning you're reading these verses, you're hearing me read them, and you're asking yourself, is is the writer here saying that a a believer, a truly born-again, regenerate Christian in saving union with Christ can lose their salvation? Or maybe you're asking this question, is there a sin God will not forgive? That's a good question. Is there a sin that leads to death that the church is even called not to pray for? Have we ever seen this sin? Have I committed this sin? Right, these are all the kinds of questions we might be asking this morning. And my desire this morning is to answer questions such as these. Not all of them, because I can't. I have but a limited time. Oh, I have time. It's just you don't have the time, right? No, I have the time. As, as well as to bring comfort and assurance to those who are doubting their salvation. How, how can I know? I, I, am I a Christian? How can I know that I'm a Christian? As well as to, to stir up the lazy and the dull to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And, and to encourage all the saints to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Well, the text breaks down very simply, exegetically. I don't know if this is a great homiletical or sermon outline, but it, it breaks down with four through six being the warning. You'll see the warning there. If you look at the text of Scripture, you see the warning in four through six. And then you, you have this illustration because every good teacher illustrates, right? He paints with words. Because he, he wants them to understand because everything's at stake, right? It's, it's serious. We're talking of the eternal destiny of your soul. So he paints with words so he'll drive it home into their hearts. And that's verses 7 through 8. So let's look at the warning where I'm going to spend most of our time, 4 through 6. And again, at the illustration as we have time. And again, given the sublime... Severity of of what I'm preaching this morning. I'm probably going to stick really close to my my notes uh, just to make sure that I'm communicating what I want to communicate without falling into error. So the preacher begins this solemn warning in verse 4 with the word for. You see that there in verse 4? See where he says for? He's connecting this warning to the exhortation he just gave, right? He just told them. You gotta grow up. (laughs) You gotta get beyond the ABCs. You're in the 10th grade, you're not in kindergarten. It's time to move on beyond the ABCs. Begun with training wheels, you're 16. Training wheels gotta go. You you gotta grow up. You gotta press on. But you see, the, the preacher here is not merely concerned with the congregation's immaturity the preacher feels and fears that there's a real possibility that that some might abandon the faith. That is to apostatize. That is to deliberately renounce and turn away from their profession, from the God they one time said they loved. That that's a real possibility. They might turn back in the original context, to, to Moses and to Judaism, to the Old Covenant, because it was safer there, right? That was the status quo, is the recognized religion of the day, right? It's not just hypothetical. These people are in danger of turning away and going back. That's why he's putting before them, he's painting with words, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that Jesus is better He's better than the angels. He's God's final word. He's better than Moses, who was merely a servant in the house. But but Jesus owns the house. He's the son. He's the one who's been appointed heir. He's better than Joshua, who, who promised rest but didn't deliver the rest. You see, for there is a rest that yet remains for the people of God, that we recognize this rest every Lord's Day. We come together on the Lord's Day recognizing we're not home yet. Do you think you're home? I don't think so. We're not home. We're exiles. We're sojourners. The race is still before us to be run, and he wants them to grow up, and he wants them to know that this slow drift could eventually to deny him, to re-crucify him by their denunciation of Christ, saying, I agree with those who originally crucified him, that he's a pretender, He's not the son of God. That really does happen. Now this passage has been discussed at great length by theologians much wiser and clearer than me. But what are some of the main views of this text? Let me just give them for you or to you really briefly. First, the preacher here is speaking about the truly regenerate Christian losing their salvation. That's one view. This is classic Arminianism. But saints, the problem with this view is that it's contrary to the Word of God. It flies in the face of the whole tenor of the Bible's teaching regarding the nature of salvation. The Bible is clear that those truly regenerated cannot lose their salvation. If you're truly regenerated, if you're truly in saving union with Jesus Christ, you cannot lose your salvation. John ten twenty eight. Jesus says, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Romans 8 30. Those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. He's going to go on in the same chapter, in chapter 6, and verse 18, and give us an anchor. That those God saves, he keeps. That those he begins the work of salvation and he completes that process. Hebrews six eighteen. This certainty of salvation is made certain by two things. God's promise and oath. He calls it an anchor. You see, Jesus is my salvation. Beloved, we know that behind the Christian salvation is God's eternal election and character, his very decree, right, that the Father chose us in the Son before time began. He set his love on us, not because we were lovely, but to make us lovely, that we might be lovely. He, He loves us unto loveliness. They might say, you might say. The Father chose us, and the Son agreed to purchase us by His blood. He purchased our salvation. Full atonement, it can be. It's secure. He, he doesn't merely make it possible, He actually secures it. The salvation authored by the Father, decreed by the triune God, executed and purchased by the Son, is now Applied to us, because that's how we get it. Because unless the Spirit applies it to us, it remains outside of us. But the Spirit comes, and He, he regenerates the, the hard heart. He, he takes away the heart of stone, that, that heart in Adam that hated God, that despised the things of God. And He gives it a heart of flesh. He gives that child a, a heart of flesh, making that heart willing and able to believe unto salvation. Salvation from beginning in is authored by God. You see, he makes us hell-bound sinners willing and able to believe. The word is clear that those who are truly regenerated cannot fall away. Well, what is the second view? Oh, the passage here is referring to the truly regenerate who are merely backsliding. They're, They're backsliding Christians. Right, this view redefines falling away as Merely falling into serious sin. Now there's very little scriptural warrant for this position, so I won't spend my time on it. I don't believe that's what he's saying. To fall away here is to apostatize, to renounce, to deny, to call down curses on Christ, and in so doing, re-crucifying the Son of God all over again. Well, what's the third view? The text is merely presenting us with a hypothetical situation that really couldn't happen. The problem with this view, like the first one, is it's not what the text says. The implication is not that falling away is merely hypothetical, but that professing Christians really do fall away. Ask your ruling elders. Perhaps you know someone who's at one time had confessed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, made vows of that confession, who have since walked away from that profession. But you see, this hypothetical view undermines the seriousness of the author's warning. It's like taking a great white. It's getting ready to be sharp weak, right? It's taking a great white and taking the teeth out of it. It's just merely hypothetical. I don't need to worry about it. No big deal. I really can't fall away. It's the presumption, right? It creates a dull Christian, a lazy Christian, a Christian who's a Christian in name only. Yeah, I can recite the shorter catechism regarding justification. Oh, it's an act of God's free grace whereby he pardons all my sins and accepts me as righteous in his sight only for the righteous of God imputed to me and received by faith alone. I got it. I cross the T's. I dot the I's. I'm a reformed man. The biblical Christian would never have and say such audacious things. You see, the preacher knows that it's real. That this warning has teeth. It's a great white. And professing Christians do fall away. Fourth view. And this is the biblical position. So you're saying, this is the position my pastor holds. You would be right. The author here in Hebrews 6, as well as in Hebrews chapter 10, is warning Professing believers who do not really possess saving faith. There are all kinds of faith in the word of God. The demons have faith. They know God is triune. They know that sinners are saved by grace alone. By faith alone in Christ alone. We're told in John 6, and this is a little off my notes, but I think it's so important, that many would follow Jesus, loving Jesus. Oh, how wonderful is the miracle worker. But their faith was spurious because it just, they loved what Jesus could produce, right? They, they loved the, the benefits of the kingdom, but they didn't love the king. And I think that's where America's had her anchor. Like we love the milieu that Christendom provides, but we don't want the king. So they go along for a while, but then when Jesus says something hard, they start to do what? They peel back. Because his words are hard. They're difficult. They're uncomfortable. It's like, I can't control this Nazarene. I want a savior who I can put up on the shelf. <laughs> once the sermon's over and go about my business Monday through Saturday until I once again take him down on Sunday morning. That Savior doesn't exist. The sooner we know that, the closer we will be to the kingdom of God. You see, these folks are Christian in name only. And the preacher not, is not just concerned with spiritual immaturity, he understands that apostasy is a real possibility for some of these folks. Now we know that those who apostatize, that is fall away, who renounce Christ, were never genuine Christians to begin with. But remember now, the, the preacher doesn't infallibly know who is and who is not a true believer, just like I don't know infallibly. Your session doesn't know infallibly. That's why we call it a credible profession of faith. Credible to the degree that that profession of faith is congruent with the life that's supposed to be lived by the Christian. Hence the warning, right? That makes the warning all the more important because we don't know infallibly. It's as if he's asking each one of these Christians there in the book of Hebrews, and he's asking us in the power of the Spirit, because the Spirit speaks. He just didn't spoke. He's speaking now, and he's asking us, Are you who you say you are? Do you realize that if you go back to Moses and the old covenant, if you fall away, what that really means, what you're falling away from, do you you know what that means? Do you mean it's like you can take it or leave it, like water off a duck's back? But you see, the warning is very serious and grave. Their eternal destiny is at stake. The, The truly regenerate, those who profess and possess, Hear this warning and they tremble and they begin to go, I don't know. Jesus. I, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. 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 They're disturbed a little bit. It stirs them onward and upward in Christ Jesus. Beloved, the, the one who professes and possesses, who knows their election in Jesus Christ, it doesn't make them lazy, but rather according to the canons of Dort on the perseverance of the saints. I have it for you in your bulletin there. You can read it later today. I want you to meditate on it, about what the reformed position is on the perseverance of the saints. It says, This warning makes them all the more attentive, makes them all the more careful to continue in the ways of the Lord, which he has ordained. You see, the preacher is clear in this context here in Hebrews 6, that it is impossible for certain people to be renewed to repentance again after they have fallen away. So who are these people? You're asking, who are they? Do I know anyone like this? What are some of the characteristics of these people? Let's look at them. First, notice that at one time they professed faith. They professed repentance. We're told in verse 6 it's impossible to restore them again to repentance, which precludes that at one time they made a profession of faith and a profession of repentance. These folks at one time professed faith and then subsequently rejected it. They renounced it. They, they willingly turned away from it. It was demonstrative. It was deliberate. It was with knowledge. It's not just merely they, they were drifting. It might have began with drifting, and I think it often does, with just a slow drift. And before long you get to the place where your sin takes you to the point of no return. And you begin to renounce Christ. Even going so far to call down curses on Christ. recrucifying again the Son of God. Second. Those who turn back are among verse 4. Notice what it says there. Who have once been Enlightened. For a time, it appears that some measure of spiritual insight insight and understanding was given to this person. That's incredible, isn't it? Some see this as a reference to baptism. Second century, that's what it was referred to. The Enlightenment was to be baptized. I don't know. There's no scriptural warrant for that, but that's what the early church taught. Third, the third view, the third characteristic. These people are are those who have tasted the heavenly gift. Some in the church see this as a reference to the Lord's Supper. So they've made profession, they've been enlightened. And now they've tasted of the heavenly gift. Fourth, those who turn away, notice what it says there, have shared, that is, been participants or companions in the Holy Spirit. They have shared in the common operations of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps in the life of the congregation. Perhaps they were granted a conviction of sin, right? They heard a good sermon. They go, yeah, I am a sinner. (laughs) I feel convicted. But Paul talks about, in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, two types of sorrow. There's a godly sorrow... That leads to biblical repentance, and there's another sorrow that's a sorry that I'm sorry that I got caught. I'm sorry because of the circumstances. Right, we know this. Those of us who are parents, right, we long to see the former rather than the latter. Right, we we want to see a true contrition, a true brokenness that says against thee and thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, O God. I'm guilty. I'm the man. Nathan, I agree, yes. I, I committed adultery with Bathsheba, and I murdered Uriah, her husband. I'm the man. I and I alone. You see, that's what the true Christian does. That's what the Christian who's had true conviction of sin. That conviction leads to repentance, godly sorrow. These folks, they know something of the common operation of the Spirit. They have the conviction of sin uh, somewhat, but not unto regeneration. That is, not unto new birth. They haven't been born again. They like sermons. (laughs) They just don't like holiness. They love the kingdom of God and all the goodies, but they don't want the king. Remember Jesus in... Matthew 7, that many on the last day will confess, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons, and do many works in your name? But then he will declare to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. Do you know this, church, that ministerial success is no guarantee of salvation? Do you know that Charles Wesley was a preacher for a couple decades, I think, prior to his conversion? Casting out demons, preaching great sermons, being in church every Lord's Day, being baptized three or four times, cannot save you. Cannot save you. There's only one who can save you. And that's Jesus Christ is your salvation. He is the gospel. Do you know Him? Have you taken hold of Him? Fifthly, they've tasted of the goodness of the Word of God. Again, they appreciated the Word being read and preached. Just like Jesus says in Mark 4 in the parable of the soils we read, he speaks about the one who hears the word of God. And did you notice this, this one that falls on rocky soil? Notice this. Now listen, give yourself my, give me your your attention. It says that they receive the word of God with joy. What? With joy? Yes, with joy. But because it has no root, endures only for a while. When tribulation comes, it soon falls away. Sixthly, those that apostate, notice what it says, have in some measure tasted of the powers of the age to come. As members in the visible church, these folks know something of the coming of the power of the kingdom of God. Like the professors in Matthew 7, they know something of the miraculous power of God, but they don't know God. They don't know God. I'm going to continue to preach in this church, you need to know God. You need to know God in Jesus Christ. You need to be born of the Spirit. Born again. To see it. Maybe they've seen various signs and wonders and gifts of the Holy Spirit like those believers there in Hebrews chapter 2, right? But they were never truly regenerated. They were never justified. Church, resting your faith on the miraculous is not the same thing as resting your faith on Christ Himself in Christ alone. It's not the same thing. It's the exact same thing we saw in John 6. (laughs) They wanted their bellies filled, but they didn't want the king. We love the king over there. The miracles, but we don't want the king. You keep the king over there. The king without the kingdom, without the cross, without discipleship. I don't want that. Saints, Christian experience, no matter how wonderful, no matter how many tears you cry, no matter how many times you walk an aisle, Christian experience, apart from Christ, cannot save you. Jesus saves, not our religious experiences. Concerning these folks, though they tasted the Holy Spirit, the heavenly gift, and the powers of the age to come, the preacher solemnly says in verse 6, when they fall away, notice what it says, I want you to listen to the word of God, I don't want you to believe it because I say it, notice what it says, it is impossible to restore, renew them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For them to abandon the faith by denying Jesus and then seek once again to repent as if, they, as, as if they are re-crucifying the Son of God, holding him up to shame and disgrace. Matthew Henry says, they declare that they approve of what evil men did in crucifying Christ and that they would do it again if it was in their power to do so. It's impossible because, now listen, it's impossible why? Because they have abandoned, they have cut themselves off from Christ and his gospel. They have cut themselves off from the very means God has ordained to secure and purchase the salvation of his people. If you renounce Christ, you deny Christ, you turn your back on Christ, you never have any interface with Christ, you never hear the Word of God, you never go to hear the preaching of God, you cut yourself off. There is no means. There's nothing left but judgment for this person. What the author is speaking of here is not a single act of sin, right? We all sin. Like Pilgrim, we find ourselves in... Uh, the meadow off the narrow path we're asleep in doubting castle but god the spirit chastens his own he takes us to the woodshed he spanks us and we thank him for it for your oh god thank you oh i i would have gone astray except for your afflictions oh god Oh, praise God for your afflictions. Oh, Father, thank you that I'm disciplined. Thank you that you chastise me. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you that I have wise elders that rebuke me when they see me walking on the broad path to bring me back into the narrow. They leave the 99 to pursue me. Thank you, God. Thank you, Father. Oh, Father, thank you. You see, that's what the truly regenerate heart says. But when you cut yourself off, that's why it's impossible to be restored unto repentance. What the author is speaking of here is not a single act again, but a, but a state of being, a, a commitment, a resolution, an attitude, a resolve that the Old Testament calls the, the sin of the high hand. When you know what God says and you say, I don't care who is the Lord that I should obey him. Like Pharaoh, right? That's the sin of the high hand. You cut yourself off. There no longer remains a a sacrifice for sins, for you trampled underfoot the, the blood of Christ when you do that. It's what the Apostle John calls in 1 John 5 16 the sin unto death, the sin that cannot be forgiven. And will not be forgiven. Saints, it's reasonable to identify the apostasy of Hebrews 6 with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's what Jesus is speaking of in Mark chapter 3, verse 29. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of sin or eternal sin. Now, it's difficult to say when a sinner crosses this line. When the drifting actually becomes the point of no return, when they begin no longer just to drift, but they begin to re-crucify, as it were, the Son of God. When and where that line begins and ends, I don't know. But I do know this. I don't want to get near it. I don't want you, my people, that God is giving me the privilege to be your preacher, pastor, to get near it. That's why we need to be extremely careful, extremely pastoral and sensitive here. But when we think about the context of Jesus' words there in Mark 3 and in Hebrews 10, 26, that speaks about the apostate who continues to sin deliberately. See what I'm talking about? Not just one sin, but an attitude, a commitment to keep on sinning against the light of the knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. The picture portrayed is that of an attitude of defiance against the gospel they once confessed. It's not that God stops them from repenting, but rather they don't want to repent. They don't even desire to repent. If a sinner wants to repent, if someone we believe to have committed apostasy comes and goes, I want to repent. Pray for me. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to wrap my arms around them and call on heaven to grant them repentance. Now, pastorally, I know that some of us have loved ones. Some of us have children we know who have walked away. They begin to drift. And if that drift is not kept in check, that drift can lead to what we're speaking of here. I believe here in Hebrews 6 and 10, the picture is of the person who once confessed faith Now living in open hostility to Christ. And with this open hostility, there's been a verbal renunciation, a verbal declaration. Calling anathema on the Son of God. Deliberately after receiving. Sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Now it's important that we have a biblical hermeneutic, right? A biblical view of interpretation. That the clear teaching of Scripture must aid us in our interpreting the unclear. Westminster chapter 1, paragraph 9. When there is a question about the true and false sense of any Scripture, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. And one thing the Bible is absolutely Waterford crystal clear some of us have Waterford crystal in our home I'd like to see it I don't know that I've ever seen it up close but one thing the Bible is absolutely clear on is not all who profess Jesus Christ are born of the spirit and possess the faith they profess it's true Just as it is true that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. You can't say, well, we have Abraham for our father. Jesus can take those pews and raise up sons. You know that? You can't boast in anything, you can't boast in your obedience. You can't boast. You can't be despising everything about yourself. The only thing you can boast on is save Jesus Christ. Do you know him? I'm not asking you made a profession. Before that. No, do you know him? Do you know him? you trusting him and him alone. How about the parable of the soils, the third soil? Remember that one? These folks hear the word, initially receive it, but the cares of the world. What are the cares of the world? Riches. Who here wants to be a millionaire? I'm not going to lie. But God probably won't let me because you know what? I couldn't handle it. Couldn't handle it. That's why people who are financially wealthy, who, who are godly, I, I just stand in awe of them. Because I think God has given them a lot of grace to handle that wealth. But the cares of the world, the riches and the desires for other things, even enter in to choke the word, and in the end it proves unfruitful. It looks good for a season. It's kind of like those trees that blossom, the fruit trees that blossom, have the pretty flowers that portend to fruit. But then when it comes time to have the fruit, there's no fruit. It looks good, but it has no fruit. There's nothing there. There's no there there, as they say. Remember Judas? Remember Demas, who for the love of the world abandoned the faith? Both had some measure of enlightenment. Both shared in the Holy Spirit. Both tasted the regenerate. Both knew the goodness of the word and the powers of the age to come, and yet were not regenerate. Beloved, these and others stand out as a warning to us to make our calling and election sure, to truly possess what we say we profess. Beware of the sin of King Agrippa. Do you mean? Remember King Agrippa in Acts twenty six twenty eight. Remember Paul there, is standing before Agrippa. Oh, Paul, you're a sly dog. You think you can make me a Christian that quickly? Agrippa was so close to heaven, and yet not in. He was right there up to the door of heaven. But he wouldn't close the deal. He's an almost Christian. Almost. Won't cut it. Do you know Christ? This morning, either you are in Christ or you're not. And God knows. I don't know. Infallibly. God knows. You see, a true believer in Christ cannot apostatize. They're chosen by God, purchased by the blood of the Lamb, regenerated and sealed by the Holy Spirit. They persevere because Jesus has purchased perseverance. Do you know that? Do you know the reason you work to will? your salvation, because God works to will within you. That He purchased not only your justification, He purchased your sanctification. He purchased your perseverance. You're here this morning, and you're here every Sunday morning because God loves you, and He set His love on you, and He gave you a heart of faith, and He granted you the gift of repentance. To keep repenting, to to keep looking to Christ, to, to finding no rest in anything other than Christ. I preach a good sermon. Who cares, Bullock? It will condemn you on the last day. Did you know God in Jesus Christ? You see, the elect will complete the race because he's promised. And he's faithful to complete what he began. Notice the illustration he gives. And i got to quickly go on. Again, you don't have all day. Notice what he says there. It's this illustration, right? He's, He's given us the truth that apostasy is real. You can get to the place where you're actually calling down curses on Jesus Christ, Son of God, re-crucifying the Son of God, trampling underfoot the blood of Christ. You can get to that place and it begins with immaturity. 10th grade begins by not progressing beyond the ABCs. Being in the 10th grade and still going over the ABCs. Not reading Homer and Odyssey, Beowulf, The word of God. No, you're still learning A, B, C, D, E, F, G. It it began with immaturity. Because they wouldn't grow up. They had adult teeth, but they never sank it in any meat. They can only drink milk. But notice the illustration, 7 and 8. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated, that land receives a blessing from God. But if the land bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and in the end is to be burned. You see what he's saying here? And let me just unpack it for you really quickly. For those who've tasted of the kingdom of God, those who've received so much, Who know the powers of the age to come, who've been enlightened, for them then to deny the Lord, they're likened to land that receives rain but only brings forth thorns and thistles. And the word of God is clear, that land is now worthless, near to being cursed, and in the end, that land will be burned. This is so sobering, isn't it? Matthew Henry says this. The bad land is not only barren of good fruit, it is fruitful in that which is bad. Such land is rejected. God will concern himself no more about such wicked apostates. He will let them alone and cast them out of his care. You've heard me say this. The worst thing God can do is leave you alone. Not disturb you. Not meddle with you. Not treat you as a son. Let you continue slowly. Drip, 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 drift, 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 drift. And then before long, you're leaving the church. You're renouncing the faith. You're, you're no longer, what happened to Jim? I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what happened to him. And you wake up the next morning, renou- <laughs> beloved, you're not white hot for Jesus one morning. And then you wake up the next morning, renouncing it. That's not how it works. That's not how life works. It's progressive, and it's, continu- it's this continual, this state of being where you, you begin to, I don't know, you begin to compromise. Rather than kill sin, you cuddle it, right? Rather than cut off your right arm, it's in sin, or left arm, you, 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 you know, it's precious, my precious. My precious. Right, Ava? Like, like Tolkien. My precious. Oh, he can't have that. You know why I know this? About your heart. Because I'm a share with you, in your heart. I have the same heart. It's prone to leave the God I profess to love, save His grace, His persevering grace. Saving Him, giving me grace to look to Him anew, afresh every day. Am I believing today? And then tomorrow morning, on Monday, are you believing on Monday? And then Tuesday, you get up and you go, "You know what? I'm going to believe today. Not what you did at a campfire back in 1983. Are you believing today? That good rain's coming on the ground. Are you that soil, that land that produces thorns, that's cursed? Nothing's left except for that land to be burned. And that's what they did back then. They would burn the land when it didn't produce what was planted. It produced only thorns. Beloved, the preacher didn't give the warning, and I'm not warning you as a faithful preacher to create doubt in you, but rather to stir us, to awaken us, to get our attention that we might pursue the full assurance of God found in Christ himself, not in our religious experiences, not in the miraculous, but in Jesus Christ and him alone. The doctrine of perseverance of faith is not a once-saved, always-saved doctrine, understanding salvation as a ticket to be punched to let us in, but rather it is an assurance founded upon Jesus Christ alone, the righteousness of God given by the Father for sinners. You see, saints, those who persevere are the saints of God in Jesus Christ. Those who continue to walk with God in Jesus Christ, who wake up every morning, I have no other good except Jesus and Him alone. He's my only boast. He's the Lord, my righteousness. (laughs) That's why I'm getting in. Because I'm trusting Him and Him alone. by grace. And I'm working it out every day. I'm not coddling sin. I hate sin. It's odious in my nostrils because it's against my God and His character and His love. I'm not going to sin against that. I don't want to, God. Save me. I said in the means of grace. I preach the means of grace. I'm sitting under the word as I preach to you even today. I need it. We need it. It's God's only ordained means. And to cut ourselves off from it is a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous place. Friends, don't let go of Christ. He is the source of eternal life. Hold fast to Him. He and He alone is the author and finisher of your faith. Blessed be His holy name. Amen. Our Lord and our God, we thank You that You who began this good work in us are faithful to complete it, and that the way You complete it is not through one transaction, divorced from reality, from an ongoing sanctification. While justification is an act of Your free grace, sanctification is a work of Your free grace, where those You justify, You also sanctify and i would pray for any under my voice this day who do not know jesus christ that today today is the day of salvation that they would abandon all hope in self in self righteousness and works righteousness and, and cleave and look to jesus christ and him alone as he confronts us in his holy word oh lord give us faith give us repentance to do so And we'll give you the praise and the glory unto your name and to your name alone. Amen.